Welcome once again to Glam City, where we take you behind the scenes of Sydney's cultural scenes. We're going to bring you history in your backyard from across Sydney. Glam is that great acronym that stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives and Museums. Hello, Anna Clark. G'day, Tamsin Peach. And today we want to welcome Nathan Sentence. He's a proud Wiradjuri man who has a library degree and works at the Australian Museum as a project officer for First Nations Cultural Programs. Nathan, I'm going to try this without embarrassing myself. Nadu Ningil Gawem Banadu. And this is where I'm welcoming you in Wiradjuri, I hope. Thank you. (laughs) We should also say before we get started that we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and waterways on which this place to SER is located, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Why is it important to acknowledge country when we're presenting information and and events? Because I think it's always important to acknowledge that we are, wherever we are in Australia, it is Aboriginal land. It, it has been Aboriginal land probably since time immemorial, since human history. You know, it's not just a gesture of niceness. It is a sort of remembrance sort of thing to acknowledge that this land has long been Aboriginal land. And um, yeah, and I think it's just, it is important just to sort of, you know, to sort of keep that into people's minds. I think that's mainly what it is, is like a reminder that we are on Aboriginal land and mm. the um, the waterways, the, the nature around us have been cultivated and protected by for tens of thousands of years by the local Aboriginal people of the area. You're a project officer for the First Nations Cultural Programs at the Australian Museum and currently secretary of the Australian Society of Archivists in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Special Interest Group. Mm-hmm. And you've also won the Loris Williams Memorial Scholarship in 2015. Uh, your Twitter profile, I think, is also really interesting. Uh, you say that you're interested in the in- Indigenous intellectual property, construction of social memory, Indigenous epistemology, rugby league, yes, yes. go the Jets, <laughs> films, theatre, metadata, which is more interesting than it sounds. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction hang on, hang on, to yourself? We've, we've got to plug his, ha- his handle. Oh, yeah, 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 sorry. <laughs> At Say What Nathan. I should feel like I should be saying that with an American. Say what, Nathan? That is actually how it's meant to be said. <laughs> And uh, we found you on Twitter. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a lot of people do. I get asked, uh, randomly, I get asked for things like this and asked to be on panels and stuff like that from Twitter rather than other things that I do. From your actual job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just, it's also your blog, which is great. I mean, yeah, yeah, they yeah. go together. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, with those things like, well, Aboriginal epistemology, I'm talking about sort of Aboriginal knowledge systems. Something like the Australian Museum, which is considered a natural history museum, works a lot with Western knowledge and Western science and I'd like to incorporate Indigenous science into that and but not just incorporate but also in a way that's not um, tokenistic or sort of or even exploitative more like in a way that validates Aboriginal knowledge and puts mm. it in the same sort of area or like a you know a respectable reverence as mm. um, Western science because you know Indigenous knowledge has sort of kept Australia sort of sustainable for a long time and it's, yeah, globally you see um, Indigenous science from, like, the Native Americans or the First Nations Canadians and people sort of using that information now to learn more about the world and about themselves mm. and how to actually um, maintain the world, yeah. 
I um, This is an anecdote which, apropos of your comment there, I've been doing some research on the history of fishing mm. in Australia and one of the things I've been reading recently was from uh, an explorer actually in Wiradjuri country and he talks about walking past rivers and that his the guys he was going with were throwing lines in to mm. the water and that he was saying that the Wiradjuri people were standing on the riverbanks laughing because they had just fished there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is a... And, and he writes this in his diary that these, you know, they were all <laughs> laughing and that they, you know, the... the this exploration party really didn't know what they were doing or talking about. Um, so there has been an acknowledgement of Indigenous knowledge yeah. of this country for a long time. It's not just something that's happened in the last 10 years. Yeah. But there's also been like a big sort of forgetness of Aboriginal knowledge Important, as well. Like yeah. One of the stories I like to talk about, because it's like not just a Sydney story, but it's a Sydney woman's story, is about um, in Eora, the while men fish, they used to fish on the the size, the people that would go out into the water and fish were the local Gadigal women, and they actually had the fishing knowledge, and they were actually considered like, you know, the holders of the fishing knowledge. But when um, Europeans first came, they actually asked the men because they assumed, from you know, the gender roles in Western society, that's mm. how it would work in, um, you know, uh, Aboriginal societies. So, so they didn't actually and lost out on a lot of sort of you know keen fishing mm. knowledge. Um, because of that. But then they started fishing. And one of the stories I always, I recently read, which I kind of like, was about sustainability. The way Aboriginal people fished was like not gluttonous, you know, they'd fish for themselves or they'd, and they'd also fish seasonally. So they would give time for um, fish to replenish. But um, Barangaroo, which that place is named after, she once saw um, these um, European men sort of fish and took about, you know, 200, like, like it was like just this big bag of fish more fish than the people around and she she nearly broke down in tears because she just thought it was so gluttonous and wasteful and it's probably ruining the um, waterways for a little time being so yeah I'm fascinated by this notion of forgetting because you know you talk about museums and galleries and libraries maybe and archives yeah. as memory institutes yeah. but there's also this silencing that they have affected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you describe yourself as an archival decolonist. Yeah. I mean, can you talk about what that means in the context of memory institutes? Well, I think memory institutions have a long time have been privileging certain voices. Even with, say, with the Australian Museum, Gadigarang, um, our Sea Country exhibition, which is a beautiful exhibition, that was the first exhibition in 190 years of collecting Aboriginal and displaying Aboriginal objects that was actually curated by Aboriginal people. Wow. So if you think about that, like Aboriginal stories have long been not told. And then when they have been told, they've been told from European perspectives, which um, have had, you know, repercussions. Like um, one of the problems, too, is like, say, with the Australian Museum or, or most natural history museums, when they present First Nations people, they present them from an anthropological point of view. And because they don't really understand First Nations people, they present them, you know, they'll use terms like primitive, savage. And what it does is actually dehumanizes Aboriginal people to the punters that go through, mm. the punters go through, see this, see these institutions as, you know, they're the primary sources of information, so they should see them as reputable. So once they hear that, see that, they can be justified in also dehumanising mm. Aboriginal people. That's one of the issues with sort of um, these sort of places. And it isn't just museums, it is art galleries presenting Aboriginal art as sort of outsider art. It is archives only collecting and prefacing the written word, which has, you know, long sort of excluded Aboriginal people and libraries doing the same or like, you know, even sort of like uh, academic research, you know, um, 
you know, academic archives keeping research on Aboriginal people, but it's done by non-Aboriginal people. And it's sort of, again, so because people will continue to go back to these sources. So if you go through historical sources, as as a, like a non-Indigenous person, if you went through these sources, you'd be getting the story of Aboriginal people from non-Indigenous people. And it sort of continues itself on. like, mm. And it, it does leave out a lot of voices and it also does leave out lots of bit of like culture and perspective and stuff like that. Like um, one of the stories I like to always think about was like one, a story that um, Kirsten Thorpe, the archivist uh, and also the head of Indigenous Services at the State Library of New South Wales, she um, was telling me that when she used to work at State Records of um, New South Wales, they have the reserve records there. So people would go there, stolen generation people would want to read their records about themselves or their family and, some, and they would read these records and be like, this is wrong, like I was there but the thing is, um, you know, these aunties and uncles that will have these stories, these lived experiences, won't be as considered as valid as a written record, which even a written record has its own agendas and biases. Even if it was a government record, they have a reason. Especially if it was a government mm. record yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same thing that happened in um, South Africa with archivist Vern Harris talks about too, where he talks about how when he tried to make it, I think he tried to make an apartheid museum, and one of it was his research into... South African archives, and he was just like, well, this doesn't actually tell the full extent of the oppression. Like, they, because, you know, these oppressive forces aren't going to write these horrible stories about themselves, you know what I mean? But again, because they're government and because we have a weird view of this idea of objectivity, and like, we sort of try and talk about history without pluralism, we try to talk about there's only one true history. Because we do things like that, it does lead to this idea of objectivity and we put so much privilege on sort of these written words or these written documents or, you know, these certain anthropologists or... Um, whereas, you know, um, especially with, like, academia, I find it funny that, um, you know, someone can be a doctor in, like, Aboriginal weaving, but then the Aboriginal weavers themselves aren't, you know, doc- mm. doctors in their own right. Yeah, yeah. I guess that sort of knowledge, you could call it even a co- the colonial apparatus yeah, of, a, yeah, yeah. of Australian knowledge... Uh, is revealing in itself of what colonialism can do. Yeah. And I was, just to bring you back to that exhibition you t- you sort of mentioned very briefly, that's the first exhibition curated by Aboriginal people. And uh, what did the punters think of that? Did it, did they it's sort actually, of respond? It's actually one of our most well-received exhibitions. It's it's a beautiful exhibition. It's Yeah, but it's one of our most well-received ones since it's launched in 2014, 15. Yeah, it's been really well attended. It's one of the ones that um, school groups asked to come to see because it actually sort of, it's uh, past the sort of simplistic view of Aboriginal people so it goes a little bit further and has a little bit more depth to it. And is that, what, is, is that what's noticeably different about it? I mean, if you were to put sort of exhibitions side by side. Yeah, you can sort of see it still. Bayala Nura, which had, a lot of, um, had an Aboriginal co-curator, but it was still curated by a non-Indigenous person. Bayala Nura means yarning country in the Sydney language, and that's the one next to Gadigarang. And they're both good exhibitions. Bayala Nura is like a good example of diversity of Aboriginal culture. But still, you can kind of look at it and you see like even the light, like the labels, they'll say things like, they'll have things in the scientific speak like wood, resin, bark string, this sort of stone. Mm. Where um, with Gadigarang, there's... um the little captions might have a little bit of that stuff, but it will actually have, like, first-person perspective on things. So not just having objects, but connecting objects to people Mm. and connecting objects to culture, like, because, yeah, objects are sort of, without their sort of culture, they're sort of meaningless. Like, 
Um, they're not meant to be sort of scientific. What's it called? Curios? Mm. Curio- they're not meant to be scientific curios. They're meant to be parts of culture and how, sort of how culture manifests itself. I mean, you have this wonderful quote from an auntie in your blog. Museums have the sticks. We have the stories. Without the stories, museums only have the sticks. Yeah, and it's true, though. It, that's, that's, the, that's the truth. Like, um, and that's what's an issue with sort of museums and libraries and stuff like that, too. Like, we like libraries might, or archives might have language material, but they don't have the meaning behind the words. Or they'll have, yeah, they'll have, you know, stone axes, but they don't know really what they're used for. And their database entries will have these very, you know, scientific descriptions of them, but they won't actually... They don't have a human connection to them, and they're meant to be used by people. They're meant to have this story behind them. They're meant to be sung to. They're meant to be danced with. It's so we just sort of need that more into the museums because it's like if we're only capturing the object and preserving it forever without that stuff, there's no real point. We're not capturing the full story of it, and we're not really capturing what it's for. Like, it's, it will just continue being a scientific curio if that's the case. Like. Like, isn't this interesting? Look at it. Yeah. So in museum speak, correct me if I'm wrong, there's ma- uh, material culture or in- tangible heritage yeah, and intangible, intangible heritage. heritage. Is that what you're getting at with that term, intangible heritage? Yeah. Yeah. But I think they should be combined. They should be, they should be one and the same. Like, mm. and, and, yeah, and again, too, like, yeah, with what I was saying, too, we need that stuff, too, to connect them back to people. We can't continue looking at cultural objects as stuff from outsiders because, you know, Aboriginal people are Australians like everyone. It's just part of their culture, and we need to look at it not as, like, a weird outsider culture. It's just, it's part of their practices. It's part of, yeah, it's a manifestation of culture. And Do you think that um, that combining of stories with artefacts is something that non-Indigenous museum practitioners or glam practitioners could also apply to non-Indigenous objects? Would that be, a, a, like, could you bring a, a, an Indigenous lens or to some of those non-Indigenous cultural artefacts? Yeah, well, um, I think, yeah, I definitely do. I was even talking to someone just recently and they were talking about the, like, even in art galleries, a lot of the art galleries have these, you know, these small little captions and they'll have, like, the artist's name and unless you don't, unless you know the know the artist you don't really like worry that much but she was saying that with her exhibition that she did down in victoria like an aboriginal photo photography exhibition she actually sort of put pictures of the people next to them Mm -hmm. or even or if she couldn't get a picture she'd have like a quote from them and she was just saying that just connects you more to what's happening not just yeah just to the maker and i think that's important like um one of the coolest things i actually did get to experience while i was in canberra recently was um the traveling tea mag um the Tasmania Museum and Art Gallery exhibition, Unbroken String, which is about shell necklace making from Tasmania. It's like a Tasmanian cultural practice for, for women, like Pakani women, and I think a lot of other Tasmanian women do it too. And um, one of the coolest things they did was they did exactly that because, um, first of all, they did it because they thought it would be boring just to have each little caption say, shell string resin and it would all be the same thing. It might be slightly different shells. So she, they decided to have quotes instead. And one of the other things they did that was really cool is they had actually, they had, a lot of it was commissioned stuff, a lot of it was part of a project to revitalise their thing, so it was a lot of people who, was, you know, did it and they were just new artists or, you know, revitalising the culture, but they actually took some out of their collection to, you know, to show the comparison. And this was the coolest thing I ever, I haven't seen it in another museum before, but say with our museum, when we show an object and a lot of our objects were, you know, gotten through trade or gotten through um, anthropologists' collections, and they don't actually cite the maker. So it will say something like maker unknown or artist unknown. 
in this one, they actually, with the necklaces where they don't know who made them, they said, made by ancestor. Oh, wow. And mm. I just thought that was a much more meaningful mm. kind it's of... It's peopling it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's what I... That's a long way about what I'm saying is that's what I mm. just want to do is, like, connect it to people. Like, people made these things, and this is part of people's lives, mm. yeah. I mean, how does it feel when you see that descriptor in the archival catalogue? Uh, Maker make unknown. unknown. I really don't like it because <laughs> it, it, it is a reminder of how things sort of got into collections and how little, um, uh, you know, how little they valued this Aboriginal knowledge because they didn't even care to sort of take names and stuff like that of the people who made it. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of a gripe of mine. Mm. Yeah. And maybe it also reveals how they were taken anyway. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah A lot yeah. of things were taken without the maker's consent. consent. Yeah, so, yeah, there is a reminder of that kind of stuff. I went to the South Australian Art Gallery a few years ago and saw, you know, what they'd done is paint the walls, the mm. blank walls. of. I don't know if you saw this. with uh, I think it was some body markings from the local, local Kauri people. Mm. And so the entire walls of the museum were painted with these markings, which just enacted in this very visible way that there is no blank space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it was really... And so these European pictures sat against this context and they looked totally different as a consequence. It was one. It was really wonderful. Because there's a lot of blank space in yeah, a museum. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This pod is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it helps other people find us. You've got a terrific blog, as we mentioned before, Nathan, and one of the things you wrote recently was on the Captain Cook controversy, the Captain yeah. Cook monument controversy, which has been uh, certainly the topic of conversation uh, between Tamsin and me in recent weeks and also historians all around the country and in, and in public, of course. Uh, your contribution was critiquing some of the debate and also putting forward an alternate list of five things more sacred than Captain Cook statues that are under threat. Can you tell us what they are, if you remember, and also why you contributed to the debate with these particular <laughs> items. Again, it was this one was because of a gripe. I, I <laughs> All good blog posts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and radio shows. And radio shows, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I picked the Bunyip Peninsula up in sort of um, the Kimberleys because it's, it has the first face print of a, of a human in the yeah. world. So it's not just part of like Australian history, it's part of world history. Yeah. It's part of, yeah. And it's under threat. And it's under threat, yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's, it should there should be, like, there is a little bit of controversy, but I I feel like I'm in my own little echo chamber of, like, of people who are angry about it. I feel like the broader Australian society is not going, like, don't hurt the bun Like, it's part of human history. It should mm. be preserved forever. Same with the Awabakal Butterfly Cave, which is, a you know, a woman's meeting site, which is very important to... Um, a lot of people don't understand, I think, we, when they talk about Aboriginal culture, the fact that country is important. Like, that's why um, a lot of culture wasn't just lost through assimilation policies. It was actually lost through land dispossession because there are certain words, certain things that you only really only really connect to the land that you're on. And that's why places like the Wobbegal Butterfly Cave are important because it's a women's meeting site and it's probably the same place where they will do knowledge transference is in that where spot. Where is it? Um, it's I, I don't know where exactly it is because it's meant to be private. Sure, private. but in terms of in the geography <laughs> oh, of... Newcastle. Like, right. Wobbegal sort of like Newcastle, a little bit north Newcastle, okay. Wobbegal. Uh, sort of that area. So, yeah, so it's kind of around there. And while it's actually technically being, it's heritage listed, which is one of the things that I find is weird, but it's still under threat from 
building development. And like one of the issues too is um, is private property. So not only do these Aboriginal women have to uh, like protect it, they also have to ask permission to go on it, which I think is very weird because they, they you know, they want their privacy mm. and they don't want to have to sort of ask every time they mm. need to access it. So, yeah, so that's the thing under threat. And there's a few others I, I did... Um, Oh, yeah. What's it called? It's come back up in the news just recently, the Tasmanian, the Tarkin area. So, mm. And that's got the... Um, that's like, you know, I was talking to um, Zoe Rimmer, who works at TMAG, the Tasmanian Museum, and she's a Parkinian woman. She was she was talking about an uh, art piece in um, Defying Empire that happened at the National Gallery, and it was connecting to that Tarkin. And you could just see how emotional she got about it, because it, it just was so important to mm. Tasmanian, pe- Tasmanian Aboriginal people. So... The idea that you can sort of just drive over it with four-wheel drives and stuff like that, yeah. especially when knowledge is embedded in the landscape. And lastly, I, oh, I did another one, but lastly, I also chose like Aboriginal children because it's it is a very scare. When you hear statistics, it's actually a very scary sort of thing. Like, and when things like you know, just recently with like Elijah and the poor lady in Cessnock who died in custody, and just it continues happening and. The child removal and the NT is really horrible. The intervention itself has sort of caused a sort of a juvenile justice boom in, in Northern Territory. And all these sort of things are, um, well, while they're not interconnected, I just think it's something we should bring up when we sort of talk about this because, you know, a lot of this unfortunately does come from, I think, from whitewashing of history again, I think. And this idea that I fear that um, in, you know, I think the intervention is like one of the, one of the worst things that's happened in recent history, but I want it to be remembered as such. Like if we go, like I want it to end first, but also too, I want it like if historians were, you know, reviewing it in fifty years' time, I want it to look back and see how horrible it is. But if we can, if we're like arguing about statues, I'm worried about how that would progress. Like, yeah, how if we can't budge on something as sort of tacky as these, like these inaccurate statues how can we budge on other topics like that so yeah and yeah sort of perspective wise i was just like yeah these statues are sort of in the context of everything they're sort of meaningless compared to sort of the threats that aboriginal Torres Strait Islander children are facing at the moment yeah connecting that past injustice to the current politics yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, seems also part of the role of Memory Institute. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. You you were talking before about how frustrated you get when the archive has got, you know, a white European name, but it's talking about or it's collected Indigenous material. What role do you think the digital can have in kind of giving credit to the makers? I think that's like it's one of the coolest things that the digital um, opportunities present, like um, digital archives, digital archival systems like Western Australian, Northern Territory, uh, West, State Library of Western Australia, and I can't remember, I think it's maybe still uh, Land Council up in Northern Territory, they use a system called Ariecha, which um, allows community to have a special login, which allows them to actually add to the metadata. Um, there's also another system from the US called uh, Mokachu, which uh, again does the same thing where you can sort of give a login to a community group and it also stops gatekeeping as well what you do to them and they can look through you can just donate all the stuff like if you went to like Walgett you could donate to the local Walgett community give them all their stuff digitally they can add this thing called community narrative which adds to the metadata but what they can do with that is it doesn't have to be written word they can also do a video or audio recording to, do, to add to it so it adds more metadata and adds more interesting metadata but at the same time 
what they can do is they can choose what stuff gets public, which mm. stuff is which stuff is um, private to their community, which stuff is only private to elders. And because of that, it actually takes um, access policies out of institutions' hands. Like, we we really shouldn't be gatekeepers to some of this cultural knowledge. And um, we want... I know for a fact that most community, cultural institutions, memory institutions, don't want to be gatekeepers. They don't want to have access restrictions. They just don't know how to go about it. And something like Mokatu and Ariicha might alleviate that because you can sort of consult with the community and then sort of just digitally repat their stuff and then they control it but also one of the cool things about mocha 2 too is yeah again it can add to that metadata things can be sort we don't have to have them sorted in the way they're physically sorted in the building you know we might have all this language material under like uh someone like william Dawes, like uh, but we don't actually have to have that like in on the digital they can actually do it by language group do it by you know place and we one of the other things too is like we a lot of times we um on our systems, we um, geographically, you know, um, organise material, but we geographically organise material through white sort of colonial mm. names. So that's one thing they can do. They can organise their material by places, sites special to them. Mm. So um, that's one of the cool things. Mm. That I think the digital offers these opportunities that the physical just can't at the moment. Do you think that, that those new ways of storing and collecting and classifying information through actual, in, you know, Aboriginal country, for example, yeah. or communities being able to control the knowledge, mm. um, you know, in some instances for the first time, I'm guessing. Yeah. Will that p- put pressure on institutions to, t- to change the way they think about their own knowledge? Not to suggest that, you know, the museums or the libraries are, as you say, deliberately gatekeeping. Often there's a lot of goodwill there. But can this digital push influence a change in the ways institutions hold their information and make it accessible? I think so. I think so too. And I also think it also helps too with even just with um, like the way things will be organised and stuff like that in digital by Aboriginal people would also be interesting for people that work in cultural institutions to actually see how Aboriginal people would organise information. Um, one of the things too is even with our information that we assume is open access, like stuff that we just... Um, we're just like, oh, well, we've digitised it. We've digitised all this language material so communities can access it. First of all, communities probably don't know we have it. And then when, when they search it, we have a convoluted sort of, you know, controlled vocabularies, whatever, like the systems that have worked for, you know, decades. But in the same way, like I'm not going to, uh, like I like I would, but like say my dad, if my dad wanted to look up Wiradjuri language, he probably wouldn't search the catalogue for Dubbo or he wouldn't search for Wellington. He wouldn't search for, you know, all these different, he wouldn't search by these European names or he wouldn't search for languages he would search by Wadri or he'd search by, you know, other things that he would that would connect to him. So we need to sort of make that more... Because mm. even if we think we're being open, we don't realise mm. that our... our new, And this is the same with sort of history. Our neutral is sort of not the same neutral yeah. as other people's. The so, goalposts have been shifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, but we think we're being open. We think we're being, you know, we think we're being inclusive, but in, in the sense we're making everyone do things our way, which is yeah. not inclusive. I'm getting the sense that these are some of the reasons you think metadata is much more interesting yeah. than it sounds. Because <laughs> it, it's what describes stuff. And then I guess, too, we, the way we describe stuff is also the way it's from the European perspective again. And so again, it sort of does the same sort of issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where the power is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So um, maybe we'll move to Glam Slam. Uh, Glam Slam is that part of the show where we talk about what's coming up in our diaries. Um, And maybe, Nathan, you could tell us a bit too what's coming up at the museum. Okay. So things that I'm working on, on the 21st and 22nd of October, I'm running modern Aboriginal meditation workshops with um, Milan Dion. They're these cultural practitioners up from Central West um, New South Wales. And what they do is they... um, we call it meditation because that's easier for to explain, but really it's, um, it's like a cleansing ceremony and a storytelling session. So what happens at the start is you do like sort of dancing, songs, and what it's about is sort of cleansing out the bad spirits and bringing in the good spirits. Everyone that does it leaves so very sort of relaxed and sort of, yeah, oddly connected to nature, even though they're in a, mid- they're in a colonial building in the middle of the CDB. They sort of get connected to the country. So very excited for that. And then also in um, November, we're doing, uh, I think it's on the 14th and 15th of November, I think we're doing Adorned. It's about expressing identity through um, jewellery making. So what we're going to do is we're going to make uh, sort of uh, necklaces, bracelets, earrings, but using natural materials. And that's just kind of really cool because one of the things too is a lot of this material is stuff people walk past. And they don't realise its value. And people get to take these home? Yes, that's part of it, yes. Fantastic. Do they have to book? Yes, they. Uh, for all those things, they book and it is ticketed, so there is like a fee to it. Language, culture, all in <laughs> one. How about you, Tams? And what's on your glam calendar this month? Well, I'm going to buzz off to the Sydney City Farm Working Bee, B-double-E, uh, because last episode we were talking about boots on as historians, and uh, I thought it was time to get my gloves on. Gardening gloves, that is. Sydney City Council holds volunteer working bees at a city farm in St Peter's. So I am going to check out the What's On page of the City of Sydney website, which tells me where that is in October. In fact, everybody should be checking out the What's On in City of Sydney page to yeah, find out not just about working bees, but also other working bees. To buzz off to. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to the close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website at 2SER.com and you can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And don't forget to hit us up on Twitter. You'll find me, Anna, under at Anna Hope Clark and you... I'm at cap underscore and underscore gown, which is not the most sexy Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. If you want to get in touch, you can also shoot us an email, glamcity at 2SER.com. Thanks. And thank you, Nathan. Mandanguru. <laughs> Thanks to Nathan Sentence from the Australian Museum for being our guest today, and we'll see you back next week for more glam conversations. Glam out! (laughs) Such a weird ending.